Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they take us too? It shows Reuters photojournalist Namir Noradan, driver Saeed Jamad, and several others gunned down by U.S. military in a public square in eastern Baghdad. Pilots apparently mistook the camera carried by a newsman for a weapon. Come on, fire! Hey, After the initial shooting, an unarmed group of adults and children in a minivan arrived on the scene and attempted to transport the wounded. The van was fired upon as well. Come on! WikiLeaks showed photographs of the children in the van who survived. We can infer that these sort of attacks are going on in Afghanistan. That this is the reality of modern warfare. Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they take us too? The real reason that I think Americans are going to be concerned is that there, that is that there is no prospect that the mission for which their sons and daughters are being sent can be accomplished. Let me go. Get me to go. Just release. Get me to be released. Uh, I would recommend halting the surge uh, and a rather rapid withdrawal of a significant part of the U.S. forces that have been sent into Afghanistan over the last year. I want to go home. You know, the, the men, Afghanistan men, who are in our prisons, they want to go home too. Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they take us too? Friday, April 23rd, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman. Hey, TGIF, Pete. TGIF. Yes, see. thank God. God or goodness. Or goodness, you know, or greatness. Or greatness, thank Or, or God-awfulness, depending, you know. It's, it's, I for it's, I for it's. It's F. F. F, that's the big one, huh? Thank God it's Faraday. I mean, Faraday did more to advance electromagnetic, you know, he did. happening and he happenstance. Did. He was a grid guy. Yeah, grid, <laughs> grid guy. One might even say a grid artist. Oh, David, you're, oh, you're okay. on, you're no, on top of Friday, it. No, it's Friday, Pete. We're glad we're, even though we started in the middle of the week, we're glad it's the end. But here's the problem. Since I've moved, or it's a mental problem, is yeah. since I've moved to the island, it really doesn't matter whether it's Friday or not. No, it's true. It's just spring. Let's play that. Oh, it's spring. Let's yeah. just go T-G-I-S. <laughs> yeah. Thank greatness it's spring. However, things aren't as springy all over the world as we'd like them to be. No, they're not. Once again, it's the same old same <clears throat> out there in Asia. More bad news from Afghanistan. Deaths of Afghan civilians by NATO troops have more than doubled this year. This is according to NATO statistics, which, according to military officials, jeopardizes the U.S. campaign win over the local population by protecting them against insurgent attacks. This theme just keeps reappearing. We, we're here to protect you. We're setting up all of these roadblocks, and we shoot you if you come in the wrong color car or you're driving too fast or you don't give us the special secret signal. 
NATO troops accidentally killed 72 civilians in the first three months of 2010, up from 29 in the same period in 2009. According to figures released after General Stanley McChrystal, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, issued measures to protect ordinary Afghans. Wait a minute. We're killing 72 instead of 29. And we've got this policy in to protect ordinary Afghans. Well, maybe these weren't ordinary Afghans that were being killed. Maybe these were special, extraordinary Afghans. Uh, Maybe they um, were college professors, or maybe they were daycare workers, or maybe they were musical prodigies. We haven't set up a format to protect them. I don't know. A Red Cross report came out recently said that the number of civilians killed and wounded by Taliban roadside bombs has soared in Kandahar, where NATO and Afghan forces are preparing for a major offensive against the insurgent stronghold. So where does insurgents a little tricky here, you know, insurgent, I live here, I wear a turban, and I live here, and I suppress women, and I'll kill you if I can. It's something along those lines. So the Taliban's no better. I mean, it's not like we're the bad guys and they're the good guys. Don't get me wrong. Them the bad guys also. The problem is is that they live there. And I don't see, if I look at the history of of Afghanistan, and particularly our history in Afghanistan since we started playing, you know, um, spoiler to the Russians after they came in and uh, supported their phony Marxist government, we've been misfiring there for years. So the Taliban is hard at work killing Afghans also. This looks like a... This is a joint venture. Uh, So some Afghans say the rise in civilian deaths may help the enemy. You think so? Quote, if it continues, people will abandon the government and join the Taliban, said a member of parliament. Mm, That's not so good. All right, so we're going to be losing people if we continue to do what we do. And if we don't do what we do, then... What do we do? Well, the pace of operations this year is considerably higher than last, leading to a 75% increase in significant events such as firefights and weapon seizures, says the NATO spokesman, Lieutenant Commander Ian Baxter of the British Army. And he spells his name I-A-I-N. That's no way to spell Ian, but of course... Who am I to say? NATO forces have reduced airstrikes, which accounted for 61% of the civilians killed by NATO and Afghan forces last year. Okay, they've reduced the airstrikes, but the airstrikes were supposed to be part of some sort of effective uh, plan, right? We had this strategy, airstrikes, take them out. Now it turns out, killing too many civilians, no more airstrikes. Nonetheless, four people were killed by NATO troops recently when their bus driver ignored warnings to stop or slow down as he overtook a NATO convoy. The incident prompted an anti-American protest. Yeah, uh uh-huh, not the first and not the last of those. No system is 100% guaranteed, and regrettably, in a very small number of incidents, the warnings are ignored and the lethal force is used, Baxter said. Oh, night raids are another risk, Mm -hmm. said a member of the... uh, Afghan Human Rights Commission. In February, NATO and Afghan troops searching for a Taliban member killed five civilians in a night raid. In response, McChrystal ordered troops last month to avoid night raids on homes when possible. And on and on. A massacre, a response. A massacre, we won't do that anymore, let's do this. Another massacre, at at a certain point, all we're going to be able to do is build schools. And we're having trouble with that also. Okay, that's the Afghan war. How about the war at home? Computer networks essential to the Pentagon and military are attacked by individual hackers, criminal groups, and nations hundreds of thousands of times 
every day, according to the officer uh, nominated to lead a cyber warfare command. Hundreds of thousands attacks a day? Lieutenant General Keith Alexander said that one crucial reason that that Defense Secretary Robert Gates created a cyber command was the amount of attacks we're seeing coming into the Defense Department gateways every day. Cyber command. I was in the Army. I went in the Army in 1963, Fort Dix, you know, M1 rifles and people in my barracks just can't wait to get to uh, Vietnam and be helicopter pilots. I'm looking at them and all I'm seeing is skeletons. But, you know, it was canteens and bullets and tear gas and all this stuff. Oh, if there had only been a cyber command, basically a room full of gamers and nerds and hackers and people wearing thick glasses. Now, that's my idea of being in the Army. Uh, Senator Carl Levin, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, said the new command, Cyber Command, quote, warrants careful scrutiny because, quote, capabilities to operate in cyberspace have outpaced the development of policy, law, and precedent. Why am I not surprised? You come up to somebody like over 45 and you say the word computer and their eyes begin to roll back in their head. If you say things like cyber command, firewalls, spiders, bots, viruses, they will vomit and pass out in front of you. So that's that's where the culture is right now. Uh, Levin again. This policy gap is especially concerning, he said, because cyber weapons and cyber attacks potentially can be devastating, approaching weapons of mass destruction in their effects. Okay, we get another Bush coup. Some Bush light comes to office, right? So he's going to what? Lie about the cyber attacks. So we can go in and invade where? Well, the, some of the biggest viruses in the last couple of years have come from the Philippines, Pakistan, and India, right? Most of these people writing these bad viruses are 12 years old, living with their parents, and working on a used Intel. But nonetheless, it may be necessary to drop Cyber Command on their head. Well, stay tuned. I got the gun from some guy I know from a club in Brooklyn. He rides a motorcycle. I won't give you his name, and I don't want to be a snitch. Uh, I heard a shot and I felt pressure in the back of my head, and my head went forward. My body felt like a, a tingle from the back of my head all the way down to my legs. I felt like uh, control of my body was not mine. I, I felt that a bullet was in the, in, in the back of my head. I started to think about my life, things that I've done, things that I wanted to do. I had the gun in my waistband. I, I don't remember taking the gun out of my waistband, although I heard a group of gunshots and voices sounded like they were um, underwater. Why, I don't remember shooting anyone, and I don't remember uh, putting a gun back in my waistband. Everything looked black and white, and... And twisted. Yes, like I've said before, the war does rage on over mm, there. On, on uh, what we used to say 
Uh, what did we mean by fronts, actually, what is, on the two fronts? Was that because of the First World War, there was the Eastern Front and the Western Front? That's right. All it's quiet on the Western, Western front. front. That edge between you and the other guys that don't want to kill you, and you don't want to kill them, but you do, and you, you just can't stop. It's a mutable, it's a mutable thing. It's like, um, you know, the other, it's like a border. I mean, mm-hmm. I really mean this. It's like a, you, you draw the border on the map, and it's about a quarter of a mile wide with your pen stroke, you know, down there. <laughs> And it's it's the no man's land that we spoke about as the Fireside Theater when we wrote uh, Waiting for the Electrician. It's that no man's land between one country and another where you're en route. Yeah. I feel sometimes like the whole world is en route right now. I mean, this Afghanistan thing is, to me, it's a tragic and it's a, and it's a costly end to American foreign policy. This will never happen again. We're not going to go marauding in some other part of the world. It's no longer available. North, South America, we're not going to go down there. We're not going into Cuba, China, etc. Can't, 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 can't we do Panama again? No, Panama, Panama what about was laughable. Grenada? What about Grenada? Let's do Grenada again. Come on, come on. No, no, no. It's all over. It's all over. And it's those, were take... little, those were wonderful little conquests. You know, you could say, oh, come on. American imperialism will never die. They, they were Referred to which one was the one they referred to as the pre-dawn vertical insertion? That was Grenada. That that was <laughs> the official right. description of that. I'm, oh, oh, this is crazy. This is you know these people. These people are gremlins. Well, uh, I, unfortunately, you know, the, by keeping men fighting men out of this war and substituting drone airplanes this, to kill this, men to kill men yes specifically not to kill other drone planes no, that would be fine right you know i like, would like to see drone that. a la drone man you know I, I would like you could combat it would get very very small you could get a soccer field someplace and uh, you know and do a, the whole thing do the whole thing all right let's get up oh, it's like those fighting kites that japan had yeah you know like or drone quidditch is what it really would be. <laughs> Something like that. But oh no. But then you got that flesh and blood mistake over there. And then we find that the computers in the defense uh, community are being attacked 600,000 times a day. Well, Pete, that's only because they can. That's right. I mean, I, you know. They're big enough to take that. Yeah. They, are, you can, they can not only withstand it, but they can withstand more. And they won't tell you how much more. But no think story. how many bozos they have coming against that bus. That, yeah. That's no small thing, man. Yeah, get aboard, get aboard. Well, they're trying to, you know, just cause some problem. Just cause anything. I mean, we're not talking about the North Koreans, are we? No, 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 no. Oh, no, good, no. no. Yes, okay. we are. Oh, Excuse I'm me. sorry. So I had to read the script about? was wrong. I said, say no. Say no. No, but after this time, <laughs> oh, it's, it's evening, say yes, yes. Well, the- yeah, we're talking about them, and we're talking about Iran. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. and we're also talking about Russia and China and also all the uh, European nations that know how to spy, the want, the want after us. Everybody wants us. Everybody. Uh, that's just maybe it's all they, they want in on the free Viagra advertising or something. I, I, you know, they why want- can't we send them our junk mail? That's why. Just send them the junk mail. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, that's Come ba- on. They could just suck it away. There it goes to North Korea, all those advertisements. And burn it for fuel. Yeah. Instead of of building nukes and putting transistor radios on missiles playing your national anthem and sending it over Japan. This is nuts. He was like an earthworm climbing off the bench into the chair. 
Uh, we were writhing on the floor. The knife I kicked from him uh, slid under the bed. I was trying to reach for that knife. At the same time, I was holding on to him, trying to keep him from stabbing me. And he came at me with the knife, and I blocked the knife up, and I stabbed him in the neck. He, he still was coming at me, and I stabbed him again, I think, in the chest. Diggum was also angry because Irv was under the influence and late for a bouncing job. I turned and, and Diggum was standing behind Irv with the gun in his hand. I looked at him and he looked at me. Uh, on the phone with me is Claire Tomlinson, who is um, a member of the Titan II launch crew from 1962 for three, three years. And he has an amazing story to recount. Um, welcome to Radio Free Oz, Claire. A uh, pleasure to be here. Pleasure so, to be here. So just, just lay it out for us, okay? Well, it's a, a long story, but I'll make it short as I can. Okay. A farm boy from Iowa goes in the service, getting bored with Iowa and the cows, and he wants to go fly the jet airplanes, and the Air Force puts him, of course, on the Titan II missile launch crew stuck underground with no wings and no windows. And here we are, the, being charged as the hangman for humanity, push the button, it's all gone. And we're the first human beings to sit out there and contemplate the situation, so... We were pretty special people. We took over the missiles as Martin Marietta built them. We bought them for the Air Force, as they called us, the Air Force launch crew. We checked them out and make sure they worked. And then we became SSS boys, uh, silent silo sitters. And we sat there and monitored the uh, multitude of lights and sirens and horns and buttons and camping ops and thing with thinkers for 24-hour tour with three other off three other crew members, and then we'd get relieved by the other crew coming out from the base. We were out in the missile hole, strung around Tucson. There, several eighteen of them, and uh, it's boring. It's boring, but you're sitting on the edge of extinction all the time. Just a flash from that button, and there it is. You walk out, and there's that ten-story missile. And you look, and there's that ten-megaton bomb. I mean, there it is. It's real. But I wouldn't you know. One night we. Uh, we get a message over the emergency war order system, which is out of SAC headquarters. And uh, we get this top secret crypto miss, uh, message that uh, orders us to launch the missile. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, this comes right out of the blue. You're sitting out there at 3 a.m. in the morning, nothing going on, half asleep, and zing! Next thing you know, come on, boys, we're going down the throat, right down the nuclear throat. Why? What happened? Well, you're not asked why, you're just a do or die still. You go into your pre-trained madness procedures of how to launch this baby. And we get into the procedures. Uh, quite a long story how that all came about, but I'll keep it short. Just before we uh, launched the missile, but it wasn't just our missile. It was every missile the Air Force had plus every B-52. It was a whole nuclear strike force going for the throat. This was uh, October 65, best I remember. And there's nothing happening in the world to cause this. Well, anyway, we did not launch, obviously. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, we got stopped about, uh, yeah, about, yeah, about that far from the end. We were so close. And then they told us we had to go back to the checklist and return everything back, the missile back to what they call ready green. It's no longer going for the throat. It's just now sitting out there smoking its pipe again. What happened? I mean, who, who, who screwed up? Uh, that, that's the, that's the comedy of the whole thing. It was a, a major, actually a colonel up, that's what the, that's what the Air Force told us, a colonel up in uh, SAC headquarters at Offutt. Had a good friend over in 
in Europe that was also going to be transferred off at SAC headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska. And he wanted him, his friend, the major friend in the service, to come into his outfit, be under him. The families lived together, and they would just continue their careers together and having a good old time. So the major finally comes from uh, Europe, and he gets to Omaha, and his buddy, the colonel, who's in charge, says, come on out, come on out, I'll show you what you're going to be doing. So I took him out to the headquarters, went underground, went into the top secret crypto briefing room, and there's a major setting it. That one council at one end, and at the other end of the room, there sits another council, and that's the alternate, the backup, in case something happens to the uh, original. So the colonel, uh, he says, uh, hey, Major, this is Major uh, Do-Right here, and uh, he's uh, going to be uh, working here, so I'm going to show him what's going on. I'll take the panel over here, and you just keep busy over there, okay? So the colonel went over to the alternate council, and uh, a little rusty on his own procedures, he pushed the wrong button. And he activated the alternate council, and uh, the major who was on duty now was the, was the alternate council, and the alternate council had now just become the primary council. And the colonel had taken the hot message, I'm not sure it's the hot one, off the major's desk when he walked in to, to show the new major, this, this is the hot one. I want you to read this. We sat down, and he read the hot message over the now hot alternate phone, and that message went out to every Air Force nuclear bomb in the world. Ours just happened to be one of them. We copied, we decoded, we authenticated, we begin to freak out. It's real. It's hair in the back of your neck. It's like pimples. It's like, Jesus, what, what happened? You know you're dead. Everything's dead. So, uh, we, you know, we proceeded as the goons we were trained to be and uh, got stopped because that major, whoever he was, was on duty that night. The world owes that man to be dead. I don't know who he was. They never said, but he realized what happened, that the colonel had taken the control from his council and put it on the altar, and the message had gone out live to the whole nuclear arsenal. He has a sense to jump back on his own council, take the uh, power back from the altar, and make him the, the primary council, and he sends out the countering message which stops us in our launch we were in the launch we were going for the throat we, we got stopped just this time mean, we just got stopped and then we got reversed had to go back through all the equipment we were about to ready to use equipment that you only use once and it was just hairy well what do you think dave it's the first time you heard this right? yeah oh my mouth is hanging open pete i mean it just Absolutely, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's living proof that a, that everybody was out of their minds back then. What mutual the, mutual madness, right? Mutually assured destruction. Well, yeah, mad and all of that. But I mean, the people. I mean, they're really they're really seriously crazy people that they would w want to promulgate an a. a uh, a war to end all wars the, over an economic policy. I mean, what? it's just impossible. Or how for many me to Bibles you that. let into the Soviet Union, or <sighs> who got the silver mine I mean, contract in Cambodia? Lemay, don't you think you I, were overreacting? Isn't this an overreaction to well, uh, to uh, to everything? I mean, it's, sure, we knew this was all going on, but fortunately, it was going on down in his silo. But, you know, and not in my silo. But I remember in 1965, I think in 65, wasn't they were digging uh, bomb shelters on, you know, in Burbank. Well, in six, well, earlier than that, man, yeah. we must not forget that when I was 
elementary school, we learned to duck and cover to uh, protect ourselves from the atomic bomb. My wooden desk, I thought as I was on my on my knees. This yeah. wooden desk yeah. is the difference, and the it, this is it. it. Except for it, there's the atomic bomb. I I lost all <laughs> real. Hope for a guaranteed future. A gar- Not yeah, hope yeah. for the future, but guaranteed no, gone. It was pretty terrifying there, but you ju- you learned to just live with it there for a while. But that's an extraordinary story, and he was a great, great interview. I mean, interview has one question; it was off. Uh, really, that's that's a that's a wonderful piece of tape. Is it, has he written a book? Does he know anything? Well, about what, it? <clears throat> what what I understand is that uh, Claire is um, does a stage show. I mean, he's got songs, uh-huh. and he's um, he's. Basically, just going around and having a good time. Told me though he can't get sleep; it's all nightmares. No. Uh, we got a nightmare song of his uh, that we'll play another time. But um, yeah, he's the real thing, and that was it. And it makes me wonder. Well, well, wait a minute. We came within seconds of annihilation. Can we get a new perspective here? Maybe can we kind of like let things out just for a second? I mean, well, the news. The news right today was about. Um, uh, an argument about whether or not the United States should take its missiles out of its uh, atomic warheads, if you like, out of Europe. And uh, some bozo from NATO says, well, it's the, uh, you know, maybe he talked like this, I don't know. <laughs> He's the only credible threat to keep us, uh, you know, whatever it is we are, you know, not having a war. Uh, and they're what ju- are they talking they're just about? As, they're just as insane. Well, yeah. I mean, the fact that they want to keep nukes in Europe... We're talking about the euro. Uh, you know, the, the Russians would just love to get their hands on a nice nice euro and have a nice euro economy. It's still crazy. It's no less crazy because no. it's right there. No, it really is lunatic. Well, we just have to uh, move on. And I swear it's the last time. And I swear it's my last try. And we'll walk in circles around this whole block. Walk on the cracks of the same old sidewalks. Then we'll talk about leaving town Yeah, we'll talk about leaving I swear it's the last time And I swear it's my last try
And now it's time for Cringe at the Fringe. <laughs> what uh, what uh, grotesquerie have you got for us today, Pete? Oh, this one's special. This uh-huh. one's special, and it's all been ignited, like like the militia groups were told, mm-hmm. by the health care bill. I mean, we gave more health care to people who needed it, and it's caused a s- storm of but, outrage. But you took the money out of my pocket to do it. We already had the money out of your pocket. Oh. It's just doing something else with oh, it. Oh, really? No, not really. They- Who knows? <laughs> come, on, come on. But the fact is, is that... Yeah, I know. It, it, the- Compassion ain't a great American virtue. I know that. So there's something happening when a health care bill can take Ted Nugent, right? Ted Nugent, the man who's just Mr. Hunting and I eat raw meat, fine. You know, it's just fine. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. it's, it's the last page in Us magazine. Now, Ted Nugent, okay, he's he goes on, I think this is like Fox, and uh, tells us his response to the uh, health care bill. Okay, go Ted. In between killing pigs, I write stuff. And that's why you have me on here today, Neil, because you've had some very astute politicians on. But I am Ted Nugent, governor of Pigland. So I'm the expert on the health care bill because I kill pigs. And I just shot a monster big pig here in Texas. And seeing as how this is a pig bill created by pig bureaucrats to help out American pigs, as I approached this huge pig that looked like a beach sperm whale, I was expecting George Costanza to come out of the bushes and extract a Titleist number three ball from his blowhole. But as I was about to put a 10 millimeter slug in this pig's head, the last thing he said was, which is pig for where's my health care? They're pigs, Neil. We gotta kill the pig. And in November, we gotta vote the pigs out of office because this is a redistribution of wealth. This is the communist Mao Che agenda of the communist Mao Che fans in the White House. They're pigs, Neil. Tom Churchill is in the Oz studio with us today. Tom Churchill, one of my favorite people on Whidbey Island, as uh, 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 Tom knows because uh, he uh, was up against me and my inability to memorize all his wonderful lines in a play called Blue Angelica. But that was a work of some time ago, uh, uh, Tom, and, and I know you, you write play after play after play. You must have something new for us, right? Oh, yeah. What have you got for us today? I'm going to be reading a short scene from my play called West is West, or The Great American Camel Race. It's between two men, uh, Jimmy, the hero of the piece, uh, 
who's a wanderer, ended up in Virginia City, Nevada. This is in the 1970s. He's self-analytical, loves to talk about himself, and his host is Orville, who lives in uh, Nevada but is very reluctant to hear sad stories about other people. Jimmy has just informed Orville that he is he thinks he's in love with Renee, who's one of the women in the piece, and uh, Orville thinks that's a bad idea. <clears throat> Orville says, uh, but falling in love with a woman he just meant, that, that's low rent, Jimmy. My history with women is consistently inconsistent, totally weird, and kind of sad. Instance one, Marilyn Bloomer, funny name, fantastic woman I had the misfortune or the good luck to meet when I was nine. I was head over heels from grade school, and I concocted this story that we made it when we were 10. You ought to be in Kinsey. I'm pretty sure I had erections from about eight, and when I'm telling my life story, which I do on a weekly basis, I always slip in that I made it with Marilyn when I was 10, sometimes nine. She went to a different high school, but when I pitched Westside High into the city championship, she jumped into the dugout after the game, kisses me in front of the whole team. My uncle, an ally then, because I was his project, loaned me his old 88. Relatives were dumping coin on me all week, so me and Marilyn head to the hottest steakhouse in Seattle. Winds blow the smell of broiling steaks up and down Aurora, then to Golden Gardens, moonlight on the water, spreading on waves all the way to Alki Shore, where she and I grew up, and sparing any private details, we made love. Not my first, probably not hers either, but far, far out, as the hipsters say. Orville, and she dumped you. <laughs> of course! At a luncheon staged by her before my final decision to leave town with my uncle's cash, we met at a Greek restaurant in the farmer's market. She showed me a ring and asked if I would be a guest at her wedding coming up next May, that is, right about now. Marrying a guy finishing med school who was beautiful and smart like her. I was so crushed I ran for the, for the restroom, but I went into the girls, got yelled at, nearly arrested. True story. Well, sad but true. I'm nothing if not a romantic. Hey, I got my own near degree in English. They write good poetry. But my saddest love story, Orville, how long does this go on? You don't want to hear about Susie? <laughs> Susie Sucrose? That's not a true name. She's Czech. I couldn't pronounce it. A rebound after my first Marilyn rejection. Small and slim, but with a crude voice like a deranged fullback. This took place near Oakland's Lake Merritt, where I lived a civilized life in town, driving down to Fort Ord as a meat inspector. Orville, no, I really don't. Other guy's pain does not do it for me. For the next several exchanges, Jimmy's need to tell and Orville's not to listen becomes physical as though being denied might send one or the other right off the cliff. Jimmy stands. I bought her a ring. I had it with me. Never asked her. Just sort of assumed. Orville, you're fucked up. Jimmy, I popped it open after a love tussle on the grass, and she laughed at me. I'll buy you a beer. I'll carry your cane, but please shut up. These deep bass barks. <coughs> and after a brief kermish, the ring pops into the grass. It's nighttime. Orville, finish in one minute, or I'll throw you off this cliff. She leaves for a phone booth, calls her mama. I split until a block away. I start thinking, that's my ring, paid for out of my dad's death money, the 10 grand me and Johnny split. So I come back and I see somebody down in the grass, ass in the air, searching where the ring fell in. Susie, it turns out, has a miniature flashlight in her teeth. And behind her at the curb, her mama's jag is burbling exhaust. I yell, she leaps up, we struggle, and I accidentally pop her in the jaw. Or, no, no, man, don't tell me that. 
Totally an accident, but she bays like the hound of the Baskervilles and jogs to Mama screaming, Loser, hit me! Anyway, I find the ring, run home sweating a hit and run, and now the ring is safe in my memory box. Orville's defeated. Memory box? Shoebox for my first set of cleats. Holds my only picture of Mom and Dad uh, pre-war. She's dark-haired, leaning against a palm tree. His arm around her, sailor hat, you know, tilted back. Wind blows her hair and curls his dark wave. They both look about 19. That and the story from the Seattle Times. Showing me and Johnny as Seattle's first World War II orphans. We wear sailor suits. My grandma made and stare at the camera like chimpanzees. Like arrested development, a syndrome I've learned to embrace. <clears throat> or was this, why go to a shrink? You do pretty well on your own. Jimmy, my failing, uh, quite simply, is that for years, I get to a plateau, a plateau of success, almost to the crest of a high level of personal achievement, and every single fucking time, I manage to push the potential success out of reach. Maintaining A's all the way through a course, and on the day of the final, not showing up. I can't help you, says Orwell. You do the same with women? According to one way of thinking, yeah. You were the man I didn't believe in.
after that, I suppose we have to uh, go completely out of our universe and up to planet Proctor. Yep, Phil Proctor's own world. And he continues. This is actually a soap opera of sorts because this this is the reading of the letters of Desiree Kolbeck mm-hmm. connected with the Tony Alamo cult church. He's in jail, but that's not really the issue anymore. The issue is her very special style. Phil? Today, a letter from Desiree Kolbeck to rap star Eminem. Dear Diary, For some reason, I am so upset today. There was a thing on the TV called Eminem. I really wanted to see it because I like him. I want to be a housewife with children, and it just be me and my husband, me and the children. Me and my husband sleep together. I only really love one man and want to be with him. I want to find the love of my life. He's probably in New York. I want to find Eminem. I love him. I wonder if my grandmother knows who he is. Well, if I go to my Aunt Kathy's house, I would talk to Larissa about it. I wonder if Eminem is married. I wonder if he would love me, too. The first time I saw him, I fell in love with him. I want to find him so bad. If I had my own house, I would be a wonderful housewife and so on. I hope he doesn't have a girlfriend already. I wonder how old he is. I'll probably say I'm 18 or something, even though I'm only 12. Well, I want to leave and get out of here and find the man I love, who is Eminem. I love him very much so. I want to find out on the internet when I get kicked out and go to my grandmother what his number is and talk to him. I wish I could see him and hold him in my arms and kiss him. I love him so much. I know he'll love me a lot because inside I can really be sweet. But when someone says something I don't like, I want to grind their lips into the cement. I guess the reason I love him so much is because of the following. White, rapper, handsome, look Scandinavian. What I like about his face is his nose and eyes. Oh, I hope I'm there on time to see Eminem before he finds a girlfriend. Oh, how I love him so much. I about think of him all day and wish I was near him and be with him. I love him. Good night, my love. Good night. I love you, Eminem. I wonder what his real name is. Well, bye. Ah, well, Pete, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, the day after Earth Day, uh, we did a lot of kind of celebrating and drinking green yesterday drank a lot of green yesterday and 
tried to tried to pee it out there on the world so the world get greener. Well, it looked greener this morning when I drove here. So you oh, guys, yeah. that's that's the green. What's it called? Isn't that called the Shamrock Pee Club? I guess. The SPC. Yeah. yeah, we just go out there in the woods and we just pee in the pee in the woods. And my gosh, the next day, it's golly, those trees out there. They it's love almost it. chartreuse. It brings on spring. It does. It does. Well, yeah, we talk. <laughs> this is the day after Earth Day, and yeah. what are we talking about? War. We're talking about blowing up the Earth and gouging into it and doing just, this and doing that. Just proves people have been stone crazy since, uh, well, I don't know when. Maybe the last 60 years, though, really violently stone crazy. Well, I think talking about it, I think returning to the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, to get the perspective of what we've really come through and are living in, because it's real easy to just, like, turn it into a, a media world, you know, in which other people tell you what it is and what's important, what it's all about. But if you go back and get the get this kind of perspective, it's overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely overwhelming. It's a mushroom cloud. What's more overwhelming than that? that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm 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 trusting that uh, as you said earlier in the show that this our last little adventures, uh, the last things are going down now. Uh, but the 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 influence of so many people willing to do so much harm in the world is is really hard to get around. I mean, you know, it, it, and it's left us with these sore spots. We see, I here, okay, here's my here's my Panglossian total optimism. Right? Okay, go. I think that once we realize this is the last of our whatever you want to call it, colonial adventures, all these various names, various think tanks, going somewhere else where we're not needed, doing bad things for no really great purpose, and then leaving. All right, I don't. I think that's over. There'll be there's going to be raw sores, you know, the Israeli situation and the, the conflict between Muslims and Christians and Muslims and Hindus and, and, and the crusade. Don't, don't forget mm-hmm. the crusade. But I think it's going to be handed to the United Nations. I think that is the path. And that goes against everything. You want to get the Tea Party literally just spontaneously, you know, yeah. exploding. Just say, well, let's give it to the U.N., and they see this word, one world. Yeah, it's really. One and and then world. The, all the rest of the world is communist except us. Communist, or it's sick, or it's poor, or it's what? You know what they really call it? The not me. <laughs> Don't yeah. make me stand next to the not me. But hey, one of the great pictures that came out of the whole um, volcano thing, the Hula. Uh, it was this picture of these two Nigerians. These were not happy Nigerians, I want you to know, but these Nigerians pushing a cart full of dead roses across the uh, uh, airport because there were no planes. That's where your roses are coming from that you are buying today to give to mom. On Mother's Day, folks, they're coming from Nigeria. Who knew? So what I'm saying is when this the one world thing become when something like the volcano happens, <laughs> then we realize, oh my God, we are so interconnected that my watch is ticking on some other person's wrist, you know? I mean it's all happening at once in a in a in a cyber energized world. And it takes a literally a volcano. To, to wake us up and say, you mean we're all interdependent? Oh, gosh, let's go back to how we were thinking before. It 
takes a volcano to scare a village. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I think that's what we'll call today's show. Well, with that one, I have to read one of my uh, Chinese eighth-century Chinese poems. These are translated by a guy named David Young, by the way, who is a very cool translator. Aren't these wonderful translations? This one's called "Late Spring." I'm in the spring poems here. Late spring, Mister Yen and his friends come to visit. Pines grow here. Also chrysanthemums along my wild paths. Books in the house by the cartload. I roast some sunflower seeds to treat these distinguished guests who have stopped by on their bamboo viewing tour. Birds were sitting here before the spring turned green, and the orioles sing on after the petals have fallen. But I have to admit I'm a little sad about the whiteness in my hair, as if I couldn't quite accept all the pleasures of this season. Oz in your ears, Friday, April 23rd, 2010. Oh, there's that bed I love. (laughs) I'm Peter Bergman, your host, my co-host, David Osman. I'm happy to be here. Um, Our producer... Bill McIntyre, John Cumming, our wizard there, our Mr. Gotwicky. Go on up to RadioFreeOz.com and click around. I think you'll have a good time. Um, it looks pretty. It looks real pretty because of Phil Fountain and the Oz Design Group and our producer, our audio producer, audio engineer, and dear friend, Dave Maloney. 